What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. And if you're an Apple Podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcast app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, a short history of microchips. We now live in a world which is completely dependent on the technology of microchips, which are made up of millions of transistors, which are so small, they're about a thousandth of the size of a red blood cell. Making something so small and complex is not something which can be easily replicated, meaning the world relies on just a handful of companies and countries to supply these chips. So how did we get here and how is the scarcity of the resource affecting some of the world's most crucial geopolitical tensions? To find out more, we're joined by Chris Miller, Associate Professor of International History at Tufts University and author of Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Our host for the episode is presenter and comedian Tamandra Harkness. Here's Tamandra with more. Whether you're listening to this podcast on your phone, your laptop, in your car, pretty much any device, right now you are relying on the work of semiconductor microchips and the billions of transistors that each one of them contains. And it's difficult to overstate the power and the potential of microchips, those tiny slivers of miniaturised electronics that lurk inside everything from fridges to cars. 75 years ago, they didn't even exist. And now China spends more money importing chips than it does on oil. To give you an idea of the scale of work they're doing, somebody told me that by 2025, the world will be producing 1 billion terabytes of data, which if you were to put into DVDs, the stack would be high enough to circle the world 222 times, to which I reply, nobody puts data on DVDs anymore because they don't hold enough. And that's why we store data on microchips. From toasters to toys, from memes to ballistic missiles, We now live in a world which is entirely dependent on computer chips and on the companies and countries that produce them. So, what does this dependency mean for the future of the world? Chris Miller is Associate Professor of International History at Tufts University. And in his new book, Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology, he chronicles the history and development of the chip, as well as the increasing geopolitical tensions between the US, China 
and Taiwan, where 55% of the world chips are produced. And he joins me now. So, Chris, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, and it's it's great to talk about your book because it really is a very comprehensive history and current picture of the microchip. Could I get you to start maybe with a few basics because I think a lot of the listeners will have only a general idea of what a microchip is. Can you take us back right to the beginning? Why is it that we have microchips and not whatever it was we had before doing a similar job? Well, for a long time, uh, humans used either their brains or their fingers to compute. Uh, the earliest cavemen were able to flip fingers up and down to help them remember numbers, but that only got you to 10 or so before you started facing problems. In the early 20th century, computing was a profession. You could have been a computer or worked in an office building, calculated data for an insurance company, for example, or a big business that had lots of data uh, to deal with. And indeed, there were vast government projects uh, in the 1930s in the United States, whereby lots of computers were employed to publish books with exponential functions inside of them, so that rather than everyone having to do the computing themselves, they could look in a book that was computed by others. Uh, but over time, we've had more and more need to crunch data and therefore needed more advanced computers than just hiring people. And in 1947, the first transistor was invented, which is a device that is an electric circuit that turns on and off, thereby creating either a one or it's on, when it's on or a zero when it's off. And that device today forms the basis of all computing that we rely on. And today, all software, all data transmitted over the internet, all computing has lots of ones and zeros underneath it. And all of those ones and zeros are expressed by tiny microscopic circuits that are carved into chips of silicon. So how did it happen? Because when you say transistor, I think, oh, yes, I've seen electronic components that are transistors. And they're about the size, I guess, of a Q-tip, of a cotton bud. But obviously, that is way too big to go inside something like a mobile phone. So how did we end up with a microchip instead of electronic components that are big enough to handle, if you like? When the first transistors were created, they were uh, they were made as small as was possible at the time, but that was still so large that they were visible. But as the demand for computing power continued to increase, companies that focused on making transistors found that the smaller they could make them, the less power these transistors would consume, and the more computing power you could cram into smaller and smaller locations. Uh, and so one of the earliest uses of lots of transistors uh, and eventually chips, which are just multiple transistors carved into a single piece of silicon, uh, was for guidance computers and missiles, where space is at a premium, where power consumption is very important to manage. And the only way you could get enough computing power in your missile guidance computer as demands for more advanced types of guidance grew was to shrink. And so although the first commercially available chips had a handful of transistors in them. Today, if you buy a new smartphone, it will have 10 or 15 billion transistors carved into just the largest of the multiple chips on your smartphone. Uh, and that's possible because today the most advanced chips have transistors, each of which is smaller than the size of a virus. Wow. <laughs> this is going to be quite a wow conversation, I can tell. Uh, this actually brings me on to something else I, I wanted you to talk about a little, which is 
think possibly one of the things that a lot of people will know about computing is a thing called Moore's Law, which is used very crudely to say, oh, well, everything will get twice as fast and twice as cheap in about the same period of time. Tell us what Moore's Law really is and, and who was Moore? Gordon Moore was one of the engineers who founded Intel, uh, which is the biggest semiconductor company in the United States and for a time was the biggest in the world. Uh, and he noticed in 1965 that the number of components, transistors, that could be cost-effectively put on a chip was doubling. At the time, it was doubling each year. Since then, the rate has slowed somewhat to doubling every two years or so. And, and that basic law has continued uh, from 1965 up to the present. And what that means is that semiconductors have advanced in their capabilities far more rapidly than any other part of the economy. And if you think of what doubling every two years entails, nothing else in the economy comes close. Uh, airplanes don't fly twice as fast every two years. Uh, houses don't become twice as big for the same price every two years. There's just no comparison anywhere else in the economy, but we've got that doubling in computing power on a very regular basis from 1965 up to the present, which is why the cost of computing and remembering data has fallen around a billion fold since the first chip was produced. And again, compare that to the rest of the economy. What else has fallen in price by a billion fold while maintaining the same level of quality? Nothing has. And that's why chips are in some ways kind of unique. The amount of productivity increase, the amount of new computing power they've produced for the same price point is really unparalleled anywhere else in the economy. Is that the same place that Gordon Moore predicted lots of things that we'd be able to do with them? So in 65, he was saying, oh, well, you know, everyone will have a computer in their own home and one day we'll have a watch that works as a computer and that kind of thing. That's right. He envisioned home computers and personal portable communications devices, uh, the type of thing we now call a, a smartphone. And at the time, it sounded like science fiction. But if you plotted forward the exponential growth that he was already seeing, uh, it was eminently realizable as, as few people at the time understood. Amazing. So, so fast forward a little bit then. When was the first microchip produced? The first chips were invented in 1958 and 59. Uh, Texas Instruments uh, and Fairchild Semiconductor were two companies that basically simultaneously but separately invented semiconductors. And they were first intended for either military or space uses. And it wasn't until the early to mid-1960s that the first chips reached the civilian market. And although the earliest chips were for defense uses, by the end of the 1960s, most chips were being sold for civilian purposes. At the time, it was largely uh, big computers that would have been used by major companies. And then only in the 1970s did the market for smaller consumer devices like pocket calculators, for example, uh, really start to take off. And as chips have gotten more powerful since then, every decade has brought a, a new use case or a new major type of device that has been enabled um, by semiconductors. And so personal computers and then smartphones uh, followed after after those initial use cases and have driven the industry forward the past couple of decades. So it sounds as if at the beginning, at least, chips were very intimately connected with the Cold War because that would have been in, in full freeze. I don't know what, what a Cold War is in full of uh, at the time. So how did that play out? I mean, if America presumably was 
in the forefront. If America invented them, America was making them. What were Russia and China doing at that point? Were they in parallel? Did they make their own chips? How, what was going on? So the, the Chinese at the time were really quite far behind. And throughout the 1950s and 60s into the 70s, China was in the midst of a variety of internal disruptions caused by Mao Zedong's different policies, greatly forward the Cultural Revolution, all of which made any sort of technological or scientific advances basically impossible. But in the Soviet Union, it was a different case because the Soviets had extraordinarily smart physicists and indeed a number of physicists who won prizes, including Nobel Prizes for their work on semiconductor physics, as well as a vast uh, budget for building microelectronics for military uses. And so the Soviet Union tried very hard to build a advanced semiconductor industry. Uh, they relied both on domestic advances, but also by a, a vast campaign of trying to spy and steal technology from Europe, from the US, and eventually from Japan. But it really struggled to work, actually. The Soviets could never really get their heads around innovating and focus too much on copying. And they didn't have the scale that selling to a vast global market enabled them. And because they were only selling to a relatively small defense industrial sector rather than to millions of consumers around the world, their industry struggled to keep pace with what was happening in the West, whether in Europe and Silicon Valley or, or eventually in Japan. And so they remained quite reliant on advances that were pioneered elsewhere and then only later after a delay brought to the Soviet Union and put into production. So what was the big obstacle there? Because as you say, they, they did have scientists. Is it just that making chips is very, very expensive? Or is it that there are particular things about the process of making a chip which are really hard if you're not in on the process from the start? Well, I would say the first thing is that uh, science and mass production are not the same things. And there are numerous instances where advanced uh, scientists who have played a major role in invention of, of crucial technologies have failed to mass produce them. And indeed, one of the, I think, striking conclusions from my research, I did dozens of interviews across the semiconductor industry while writing Chip War, uh, was the extent to which the science was the easier part and the manufacturing was the harder part. One of the engineers I spoke with who started her career uh, in a PhD program and then left academia to work uh, at a semiconductor firm said, you know, science is actually pretty easy because you, you succeed by doing something once in a lab. Whereas in industry, we have to do something a billion times a day with almost perfect accuracy. And that's just far harder than uh, doing something once. And and that that was where the Soviet Union really struggled because doing something once didn't get you anything. They had to produce at scale. And in the semiconductor industry, the industry has been defined by massive economies of scale. The more you produce, the more you can learn about how to produce most efficiently, the more you can hone your production processes, and the more effective your technology becomes, the more cost efficient it becomes. And so if you're a small producer, you're never going to keep up with the biggest players in the industry. That's true for companies competing with each other, but it's also true with countries competing with each other. And the Soviets never had the scale to keep up with what the rest of the world was able to do. And you say spies. So did they send Russian spies what, to work in the to work in Silicon Valley and try and steal all the know-how and take it back? They, they did indeed. And, and it wasn't only spies. There were also uh, exchange students. The Soviets had exchange students studying in places like Stanford University, as early as the late 1950s, when this was really cutting edge technology. And several of these exchange students in the US brought chips home to the Soviet Union, handed them over to the Soviet government, uh, and 
enabled these ships to be copied. And on the margin, this had an impact on Soviet capabilities, but the reality was that uh, copying can only get you so far in an industry that moves at the rate of Moore's law. In industries that move slowly, where things change by 2% or 3% a year, copying can get you pretty close to the cutting edge. But if if the industry is racing forward at exponential growth rates, then copying something that's a couple years old means that you're far behind where the cutting edge is. And that's the problem the Soviets were never able to find a solution to. And I guess with something, again, as, as intricate and let's face it, small as a microchip, it must be quite hard to reverse engineer the process of what you would have to do to mass produce them just by looking at the thing. I mean, I'm thinking a car, maybe not a car now that's full of chips, but a car, say, 20 or 30 years ago, if you got the car and you knew in general how to make mechanical things, you could work out how to build cars. But with a chip, is how easy is it to do that? It's it's quite difficult, um, and, and it's it's a difficult to know how to do it once, and then even if you figure out how to go from having a chip to learning how to produce one of them, it's a very different question to know how to produce them efficiently at scale, uh, because the key thing to do is is not just to produce one. You need to even if it's for military uses, which are relatively small production volumes compared to smartphones or PCs, you still need a lot of them. And you need to know which ones work and which ones don't. So you've got to have the entire system scaled up to make chips that are actually useful, that you'll trust in putting in your airplanes or your missile systems. Uh, and if you don't trust your chip industry, if you think that they produce lots of duds, if they don't know which ones work and which ones don't, if you can't trust that they're going to work for a long time in harsh conditions, you'll start to rely less on them. And that's exactly what the Soviet Union did. They had a chip industry, it was capable at certain times of producing chips of certain quality, but never at the level of quality enough to get engineers to really trust that they were going to work and be available when they needed to it. So the Soviet defense industry tried hard not to rely on semiconductors, which meant that they entered the latter decades of the 20th century trying to design out computing power from their systems, just as the rest of the world, and especially the U.S., is trying to design in more and more computing power to take advantage of uh, the new capabilities that chips were enabling. Yeah, I was really struck, actually, by the end of one of your chapters, where you just say, the Russian chip industry faced humiliation with one fab reduced in the 1990s to producing chips for McDonald's Happy Meal toys. But there's your last sentence, the Cold War was over, Silicon Valley had won. So was it really that important, the Cold War, that they were unable to produce microchips of the same scale and quality? Well, I, I think the answer is yes. If you ask yourself, what's the key difference between a fighter jet produced in 1972, 50 years ago, or a fighter jet produced today? It's not that they go a lot faster. It's not that they carry substantially more weaponry. Um, it's not that the design of the plane is dramatically different, that there have been some changes with, with stealth designs. But the, the key difference is that there's a lot more computing power and communication, which is also a, a question of semiconductors, both on the plane, on the munitions on the plane, in the satellites communicating with the plane, on the ground, uh, in all the different parts of the intelligence and surveillance apparatus providing targeting information to the plane. That's the key difference. And the same thing is true with tanks or artillery pieces or naval ships. And we often find militaries around the world keeping the planes and ships intact for longer than they expected and just regularly upgrading the electronics on their systems so that they can bring new capabilities to bear. 
And if you look at how militaries use their equipment today relative to 50 years ago, what you find is that today there's an expectation of precision in a way that there wasn't in the past. Today, we just take it for granted that missiles can be fired, fly for a couple hundred miles and hit a target with pretty good accuracy. Whereas 50 years ago, that was an absolute fantasy that you could only imagine in a science fiction book or film. And that change has been all about computing power, both within the systems themselves, but also spread across the military to take in information, communicate it securely, uh, let it be processed, let decisions be made, and then let targeting information be transmitted to weapon systems. And all of that is a question of computing power that's possible now because of semiconductors. It was simply impossible half a century ago. I'm trying not to have a horrible mental vision of flying a fighter jet and then suddenly the computer announcing that it has to install updates while you're in midair. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure that's not how it actually works. All right, so the Cold War's over. And meanwhile, microchips are much more about uh, civilian uses. But I want to just actually pick up something that you, you mentioned almost in passing about Japan. And it, it seems that the, the the current importance of Asia as a place where microchips are made goes back uh, a long, long way. So how did that come about? Is that just one of those weird coincidences of history that Asia became like the, the centre of gravity of where microchips come from? Well, the production of microchips has always been a process that has multiple steps involved. And some of the steps are very capital intensive, but others are, are more labor intensive. And the assembly of chips, once you've got a chip, you assemble it into a package that's made out of plastics or ceramic before it's put into a final good. That assembly package, that assembly process rather, has always been pretty labor intensive and especially so during the early days of the industry. And so in the early 1960s, uh, there was already a move by Silicon Valley companies to set up assembly facilities in East Asia. The first was founded in Hong Kong in 1962 by Fairchild Semiconductor. And so there's been this deep interlinkage between Silicon Valley chip makers and partners in East Asia for uh, a long time. But over the past half century, firms in East Asia, in South Korea, in Taiwan uh, in particular, have been able to move from pretty low value labor intensive assembly work to much more technologically advanced cutting edge chip making, such that today, the most advanced logic chips are processor chips, the type you'd find in your smartphone or PC, uh, are made in Taiwan. Uh, and many of the most advanced memory chips are made in South Korea. And that's been driven both by the successes of a small number of firms in those countries, Taiwan's TSMC and South Korea's Samsung. Uh, it's been driven by the support of those two governments, which have wanted to build up semiconductor industries and have spent a fair amount of money to uh, support those firms. And it's also been supported by a overall trend towards specialization. Whereas in the past, companies would do all the process steps of creating a chip in-house, build their own machinery, refine their own materials, design their own chips, produce their own chips. As each part of that process has gotten more complicated, individual firms have started focusing on different parts of the process. And so today, the firms that excel in the manufacture of chips are generally based in East Asia, especially in Taiwan and South Korea. I was going to ask you about that because in some ways we think of everything in the economy today as being very globalized and that's why supply chains are so important. But it seems from reading your book that maybe you could you could describe it as globalized in that 
if I get something with a chip in, it probably bits of it have traversed the world three or four times before it all ends up in my hand. But in another way, it seems almost more like a series of monopolies that each of which has most of one particular point in the process. How would you characterize it? Yeah, I think globalization is a word that's thrown around a lot, but it applies very badly to the chip industry. Parts of the chip industry are globalized in the sense that today, almost anywhere in the world, you can buy almost any type of advanced chip with a couple of small exceptions. And that's a global market that chip firms are selling to. But in other ways, that word really completely inaccurately describes the industry because there are a tiny number of companies and countries that dominate the production of advanced chips. And most countries have close to zero role in the semiconductor supply chain and have, as a result, zero influence over chip companies and are completely reliant on this small number of countries to get the chips that they need. So today, if you look at how the chip industry is structured, if you want to make an advanced chip, you'll often use a design from the U.S. as well as a lot of machine tools from the U.S., a couple of machine tools from uh, Japan and the, and the Netherlands, ultra-purified chemicals from Japan as well, and then produce that chip in Taiwan or in South Korea. And many other countries are completely absent from uh, the supply chain process. Uh, and because the supply chain is so specialized with a small number of companies and countries, those countries that have a crucial part of the supply chain monopolized or as an oligopoly in their countries have an immense not only economic position, but also uh, an immense amount of geopolitical power that accrues to them. And that's why you've seen more and more countries over the past half decade or so try to weaponize their position in the supply chain by cutting off their adversaries' ability to access the types of goods or chemicals or equipment that they play a major role in producing. I mean, I was struck by your description of one particular chip where it's probably designed... In, uh, in Silicon Valley, the machine tools are made in the Netherlands, uh, and then the actual construction happens probably in, in Taiwan. So what is it about each stage of that process that that country got really good at? Or is it just that they got a commercial monopoly? Take, take me through each stage. So, so who's, who's designing the chips in America? Is it still Silicon Valley or is it more distributed? Most of the key designers are still based in Silicon Valley or Texas is one of the other key centers of chip design as it has been since the days of Texas Instruments. And of the world's biggest chip designers, most are based in the United States. And even within the space of chip design, you can talk more specifically about designing certain types of chips. But if you want to design a chip, you not, need not only a design, but you also need the software that's necessary to actually undertake chip design. And because advanced chips will have of billions of transistors on them, uh, what that means is you need to buy ultra-specialized software to undertake it. And so there are just three companies that dominate the industry for chip design software. So that's where you start. Get the software. <laughs> right. Okay. So three companies have chip can... design software, uh, and then yeah. someone designs it. And then tell me about the machine that... tools from the Netherlands. I mean, how did that happen? So there, there are five companies basically that control uh, the market for machine tools, uh, three in the United States, one in the Netherlands, one in Japan. And you can't really make an advanced ship without buying tools from all five of them, uh, which means you've got to be able to access uh, these companies 
tools if you want to play a role in the chip industry. Once you've got their tools, you still got to learn how to make use of them in the most efficient way possible. And that's where the Taiwanese company TSMC is better than any other. I know I want to ask you a lot about TSMC, but just, I mean, sure for you, this is second nature, but I'm just so intrigued by an industry that's so specialized. What's to stop, say, Russia just going, well, we can't buy your machine tools, but there's only five different types uh, and we can, I don't know, hack your computers and get copies and now we're going to build our own machine tools. What's what's stopping them? What's so special about them? Well, these are the most precise types of equipment that humans have ever made. So if you take, for example, uh, the extreme ultraviolet lithography machines produced by the Dutch company ASML, they have a 100% market share in the production of these machines. Uh, there's just no easy way to copy them. Uh, just to give you some of the, the background as to how these machines are produced. They involve the flattest mirrors humans have ever created. They have an explosion going on almost constantly inside of them at several hundred thousand degrees Fahrenheit. The amount of engineering and specialized knowledge that uh, is required is just extraordinary, which is why it took 30 years to develop this machine, uh, why each one costs $150 million, making it the most expensive machine tool in history, uh, and why it takes multiple 747s to transport them. Uh, so this isn't something that you can straightforwardly copy. And you don't just need one machine, you need uh, multiple different types of machines that are all uh, just about as complicated as these to make. And you can't have a advanced semiconductor facility without having all these different types of machine tools, each of which is capable of moving materials or manipulating materials almost at the atomic level. Wow, okay, that's another wow moment. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. So let's go back to Taiwan, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC, which I, I mean, you throw out a lot of stats there about how many of the world's chips actually originate from, is it all from one factory? Is it literally there's one factory in Taiwan and all the world's important chips come from it? TSMC builds a, a new facility every couple of years as they bring a new technology node online. So their newest technology is generally coming from their newest factory, but they still have a, a range of older facilities operating older types of technology. So how did they how did they come about? Because it does seem another of those rather arbitrary things in history that there's one place in one country that is so important to a, a business that dominates the world. Yeah, yeah. So TSMC was founded by a. Uh, entrepreneur named Morris Chang, who is one of the most, I think, underestimated entrepreneurs of the uh, last hundred years. Um, he has a fascinating life story. He was born in China right before World War II, spent the war fleeing Japanese armies, first to Hong Kong, then to Chongqing. And the communists took power and he fled again, uh, enrolling at Harvard, where he studied Shakespeare for a year and then decided to uh, study something more useful, he decided, and so transferred to physics, uh, where he specialized uh, at MIT. And he was hired by Texas Instruments in the very earliest days of its semiconductor business and uh, gained a reputation for a unique ability to improve their manufacturing processes and rose up to the almost to the top of Texas Instruments before he was passed over for the CEO job in the middle of the 1980s. And he was looking for uh, something else to do. He's already at, 
basically at the peak of his career in some ways, uh, a really senior executive in the chip industry. Uh, and he'd been to Taiwan a couple times previously when he helped TSMC open an assembly facility in Taiwan. And over the course of that work with TI, had gotten to know a number of government leaders in Taiwan, and they were interested at the time in building up their electronics assembly industry. And they offered him a, a, an attractive deal. They gave him essentially a blank check to build up a big, new, leading-edge chip business in Taiwan. Uh, and he, at the time, was interested in trying out a new business model for the chip industry. In the past, most chip businesses both designed and manufactured their chips in-house. That's how Intel worked. That's how Texas Instruments worked. But Morris Chang wanted to try something new, which was only manufactured chips and manufactured chips that were designed by a range of other customers. So customer would design a chip, take it to him, he would manufacture it. And at the time, there was no such business model out there like it. But because the Taiwanese government was willing to fund uh, him, he raised money from uh, them and some other Taiwanese investors with the government help and was able to set out TSMC on this new business path that previously hadn't existed. So now they completely dominate chip manufacturing for pretty much the whole world. Is that right? Is that fair? That's right. They're the <laughs> biggest producer of chips today. Uh, they produce 90% or so of the world's most advanced processor chips. Uh, it's impossible to uh, have a Apple product produced without them. Most smartphones couldn't be produced without their chips. A third or so of PC processors are produced in Taiwan. Chips needed for AI and data centers or for cell phone towers. The entire world economy would grind to a halt uh, if, for whatever reason, TSMC's production uh, was disrupted. And so in some ways, they're the most important company in the world. And of course, there are a couple of ways in which it could be disrupted because they're quite near some place where earthquakes happen. In fact, they, they have been hit by earthquakes in the past, haven't they? Physical earthquakes, I mean, <laughs> geological earthquakes, and of course, geopolitical earthquakes, because there is this constant tension between uh, mainland China and Taiwan, and China saying, well, actually, you're part of us and we want you back. I imagine that this works both ways. On the one hand, the tensions and the threats mean that the whole world economy could be completely sideswiped if their facilities for any reason were to stop producing or or they couldn't get at, get the product out. But the flip side of that presumably is that they are of enormous strategic importance to every other country in the world. That's right. That's right. And, and so today everyone relies on TSMC's chips. They sell chips to the US, to Japan, to Europe, to China. Anyone who buys a smartphone uh, is likely buying at least one and in many cases multiple uh, chip produced by TSMC. And so for every country, there's a strong interest in making sure that TSMC is able to keep producing chips that everyone needs. But it's also the case that because of the most advanced chip maker in the world, and because their volume is uh, so high, that the ability to control who they produce chips for, which companies they produce chips for, is an extraordinary lever of power. Uh, and the U.S. has, over the past five years, been exerting more influence to cut TSMC off from producing chips for a number of Chinese firms. Uh, the most prominent example of this is Huawei, which used to be TSMC's second largest customer until the U.S. forced TSMC to cut it off. Uh, but a wide variety of Chinese firms uh, have been Ban from producing at TSMC. Uh, and the U.S. is using its influence over TSMC and over Taiwan to 
limit the ability of Chinese tech companies to access TSMC's production capabilities. So is China not trying to develop its own its own capacity to manufacture chips? Because you would have thought China now is very technologically advanced and surely is capable of just saying, well, we're going to build our own factories, we're going to buy our own machine tools from the Netherlands and from Japan, and we won't need you anymore. And uh, then we won't care if, if you cut off your chips from Huawei. China's certainly trying to do that, and they've been trying for almost a decade to race forward in semiconductor technology, but they're starting from a very low base and they've got a long way to go. And if you look across the semiconductor supply chain, the different steps that are needed to design, produce, uh, and assemble chips, China plays actually a comparatively small role in the supply chain relative to Taiwan or Korea, certainly relative to the United States. And today, China is still hugely reliant on the import of manufacturing tools from abroad, software from abroad, and and also chip designs uh, from abroad. So today, China is far from self-sufficient. It's far from having a de-Americanized supply chain, which is the more plausible goal for China to pursue. And it remains deeply dependent on foreign technology, not only U.S. technology, but especially U.S. technology, to produce the chips that it needs. And I think what's worth noting in this industry is that it's not so easy to say we're not going to buy from U.S. suppliers, we're going to buy from foreign suppliers instead for two reasons. One is because there are some types of equipment where the U.S. is the only supplier of the most advanced equipment. If you look at the machine tools needed to make semiconductors, for example, it's a Dutch firm that has 100% market share in the lithography space, which is one of the types of tools you need. But if you look at the deposition sector, depositing ultra-thin films, several atoms thick, of materials onto semiconductors. Those are largely U.S. firms that control that market, and so there simply aren't alternative sources of supply. But even beyond that particular question uh, is the reality that most of the equipment, most of the chemicals, most of the designs and software needed to produce semiconductors are produced either by the U.S. or by very close allies, like the Netherlands, like Japan, like Taiwan, And in all of these countries, views of China's technological rise have shifted dramatically over the past couple of years, such that it's become far easier to explain in these countries, like in the U.S., why restraints on Chinese technological development might be in these countries' interests. And so as a result, although there's a couple of different countries that play a big role in the semiconductor supply chain, in all of them, China is facing much more difficulty in gaining the market access that it wants, which is why it remains far away from the ability to produce uh, advanced chips and, and won't get there anytime soon, at least a half a decade away and probably a decade away from that ability domestically. There's certainly been some discussion recently about Huawei specifically and the wisdom of using their products in uh, in America and its allies. How much is that a genuine concern about security and the possibility of if you buy somebody's chips, actually, you're giving them access to some of your most sensitive uh, equipment and communications networks. And how much is it just a commercial choice, just saying, we don't want you to develop an independent microprocessor industry, and therefore, we're not going to give you a big market so that you won't have the money to develop it? 
Well, I think the, the question of Huawei's telecom gear should be examined somewhat separately from the question of chip production because they are different technologies. Uh, but I think in both of them, you see strategic concerns by far outweighing economic concerns. And the reality is that it's economically costly for countries to turn down Chinese products because Chinese products are sold abroad at cheap prices because the Chinese government subsidizes them. So it's a costly measure to turn them down, but governments have been increasingly doing so for security reasons. If you start with Huawei's telecom equipment, what you find is that the countries that are closest to China began raising concerns earliest about the security concerns. So it was really Japan and Australia that led the charge uh, in terms of rejecting Huawei from their 5G networks. Then only later did the U.S. start focusing on this issue and then Europe after that. So there's a pretty close relationship, not, not in terms of competition from China, because the countries that competed directly with China for telecoms equipment were Sweden and Finland uh, with Nokia and Ericsson, but rather proximity to China and therefore concern about growing Chinese power was the best predictor about how quickly a country would get concerned about Huawei equipment and their 5G networks. When it comes to semiconductors, it's, it's, it's pretty clear that uh, companies don't want these restrictions in place. And we've seen pretty active lobbying by uh, chip companies in the US and South Korea and Taiwan not to have restrictions. Uh, and instead, it's, it's defense ministries and the Defense Department in the US that's driving these restrictions. And their logic is, is really quite straightforward. It's that Everyone knows that China is going to produce more ships, more planes, more drones, more missiles, more systems in general than the United States is in the Western Pacific and in the Taiwan Straits in particular. And that's all already the case and that by any sort of reasonable set of projections will continue into the foreseeable future. And so the only hope the U.S. is going to have of preventing the further deterioration of its military position is matching Chinese quantity with some sort of quality advantage. And if you ask yourself, what sort of quality edge does the U.S. plausibly have over the Chinese military? There are a couple of uh, specific types of manufacturing, like aircraft engines and submarine design, where the U.S. pretty clearly does still have an advantage over China. But across military systems, the most durable edge that the U.S. has is in computing power the ability to produce more transistors and apply them to uh, military problems with better sensors, better processing, more autonomy, uh, better communications. And that's a question of semiconductors. And so the U.S. strategy is simple. China's going to produce more stuff, more planes, more tanks, more missiles, but we're going to have more advanced computing undergirding ours, and that's going to sustain the military advantage. And that's the bet the U.S. government is making right now. How close a parallel is it to the Cold War when it was Russia trying to keep up and failing with the chips? Well, the, the Pentagon is hoping that it's a close parallel, uh, but there are obviously differences be between the two uh, instances. I think one difference is that the Soviet Union didn't have a large consumer economy that had a big computing industry, whereas China does. So that, that's a clear difference, which is to China's benefit. Second is that during the Cold War, it was the Soviet Union which was voluntarily keeping itself partially cut off from the rest of the world's economy, not, not exclusively, but largely voluntarily, whereas China is quite active in trying to integrate internationally. And so that's also to China's advantage. Uh, and then thirdly, the, the, the U.S. is starting this uh, relatively late in the game, I think, if you compare it to the uh, scale of restrictions that were 
in place on the Soviet Union and the duration in which they were in place uh, was far more dramatic compared to the restrictions that are on China right now. Um, so all of those uh, are to China's advantage. Um, all of those suggest that China's military will get much more uh, benefit out of its existing access to the leading edge in computing than, than the Soviet Union was ever able to do. Um, but it's still the case that China remains pretty far behind. And so uh, the U.S. strategy is to hope that over the next decade, this gap between U.S. and Chinese capabilities will widen and that this gap can then be applied to military equipment to make smarter, better equipment that can that can make up for the quantity gap that is opening and widening with China. How do you see the future unfolding? I mean, do you think that the fact that China is still in reality dependent on an international international suppliers for really vital things like microchips might be a restraint on the escalation of military conflict? Do, do you think the kind of interdependence of economies might keep things more peaceful than they would be if countries were independently able to produce state-of-the-art chips? Well, the optimistic view is that the US and China and Taiwan are engaged in a sort of mutually assured economic destruction that uh, mirrors the mutually assured destruction that nuclear weapons provided during the Cold War. And, and you know, I think there's some truth to that in the sense that a war would be disastrous economically for all parties involved. But I also think that in the past, just a couple of years ago, it was clear that Chinese leaders were resolutely focused on economic growth as their primary metric for policy success in a way that after three years of zero COVID, after a attack on China's private sector tech firms by the Chinese government, uh, and by the fact that China's own government is signaling that growth is going to slow dramatically, uh, it's less clear that economic growth is the primary priority of Chinese government. And so I think that coupled with the fact that the military balance does continue to shift in China's favor and will shift in China's favor for at least the next couple of years, opens up more uncertainty in my mind about whether, in fact, the economic costs of war will restrain China. And I think it creates more of an opportunity for uh, those in China who would say, this is our window to act, let's act now to have their voices heard. And I, I think that this year, 2022, has also been a good reminder that it's not always the case that leaders make economically rational decisions or try to maximize economic uh, considerations. And, and President Putin is the best example of this. And when I hear people pin all of their hopes to economic disruption deterring Xi Jinping, I think that sounds rather like Angela Merkel's energy strategy the past two decades, uh, which didn't turn out the way that Germany hoped. So I, I remain cautiously optimistic that mutually assured economic destruction holds, but my level of confidence has declined a lot the past couple of years. So what would you be thinking if you were in Taiwan working at TSMC today? Well, I think if, if I were in Taiwan, the first thing I would be doing is advocating a much more robust defensive effort. And I think one of the key puzzles right now is, while though the rest of the world is looking at the Taiwan Straits and sensing dramatically more risk in Taiwan. If you look at their defense budget or what they're spending their defense budget on, it's harder to see uh, major changes, even as the international environment gets much more complicated for them. Um, so I would first be saying to my government, why aren't we buying a lot more anti-ship missiles and a lot more anti-aircraft missiles than we currently are? Uh, but if you're at TSMC, I think the challenge is that for 30 years, you've 
benefited from a environment where you could work without much restriction with Chinese firms, American firms, with companies from all over the world and not have to think hard about politics. And that era is now very clearly over. It's over for all companies, but especially for companies in the semiconductor industry and especially for companies that are in a place as contested as Taiwan. Well, that's a slightly pessimistic note to end on, but I guess your book is called Chip War rather than Towards Perpetual Chip Peace. So, uh, uh, and I do recommend it, by the way. It's a great, if, if you need a Christmas present for somebody who wants to know absolutely everything about the history of the microchip, then this book is it. So thank you very much, Chris. Uh, that was absolutely fascinating. So that was Chris Miller, author of Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology, which is on sale now. And as I say, it, for anyone who wants to know the complete history of the microchip, it's the ideal Christmas present, so bye now. I've been Tamandra Harkness, and indeed I still am. You've been listening to the Intelligence Squared podcast. Thanks for listening, and uh, just say a little thank you to all those microchips working in whatever device is letting you listen to us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. <laughs>